FIFA has announced its 2030 World Cup hosts, and they're doing something strange and unprecedented. It's Thursday, October 5th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. We have some exclusive reporting on the media rights negotiations for the college football playoffs. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome back, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? Good. So you've got a scoop along with our colleague Mike McCarthy. Uh, what What's the latest on the CFP media negotiations? Yeah, so um, my colleague Mike and I were able to nail down um, two of the streamers that are interested um, in the college football playoff uh, package, which is coming up in 2026, and it will be the 12-team expanded playoff. Um, that is Apple and Amazon. Uh, no huge shock to anybody, given that Apple and Amazon were both interested in the Pac-12, and neither of them obviously were able to obtain the rights to the Pac-12 because nobody did. Um so, you know, these discussions are very preliminary. There are a lot of um, media companies interested, but, um, you know, there is a possibility that uh, at least a slice of the college football playoff could be on a streaming platform. And we know with the NFL that it was important for them to start bringing in streamers, you know, obviously with Amazon and now YouTube. Do you get that sense here that, it's not just that they are, these are just two more media companies that want in on the deal, but the CFP is actively looking for a streaming partner. Yes. Um, and this was reported last week. Uh, the college football playoff executive director um, said on the record, told reporters who were, who were at the meetings last week that um, there is mutual interest in a streamer. So streamers are interested in the CFP and the CFP is interested in streamers. And I am guessing this would be shared. I guess we don't know yet, but um, but shared between perhaps a streaming partner and a linear partner. I mean, there's only so many games to go around, I guess, is the thing. Um, do we have any sense of how that breakdown might shake out? Yeah, it's in a, so it's an 11-game package. Um, it will most likely be multiple networks. Um, so, you know, there could be a streamer and two linear networks, right? Like we, we have no idea, but the expectation is that there is going to be more than one partner, uh, you know, NFL style, um, because it's very early obviously, but, um, first of all, the big 10 has shown that a multi-network NFL style approach, you know, that's succeeding for them early on um, in their first year of the media of their new media contract, which started the season. Um, and the other thing I'll say is like, obviously um, multiple bidders drives up the price. So if you sign multiple networks, that is also going to be good for your bottom line. Got it. And in terms of the hierarchy of media value, how, how should we be viewing the CFP in terms of, you know, where it ranks, I guess, um, in terms of how valuable these rights are? are. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably going to be more valuable than um, the men's NCAA tournament. It's going to be the most valuable college postseason event for sure. Um, I, as not, Mike is probably a better person to ask, but I believe after, you know, the NBA 
um, package, this is probably the most sought after in the marketplace right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's significant because, I mean, NFL is a done deal for the next decade or so. Um, yeah. MLB doesn't, I don't think has anything coming up. So yeah, if, if you want to get in on sports, all of a sudden you've got not too many options, at least on the premium end or many lesser, less premium ends to, uh, to explore. But yeah, this is one of the, the remaining national audiences that are, uh, are still out there. Um, any sense of when this is all going to be, you know, when the deal is going to be done? Honestly, no, um, because if I learned anything about the Pac-12, um, a deal, we could get a deal in three weeks, we could get a deal in three months. Um, but I, you know, I don't think that this is going to take a year. Um, you know, they also have to nail down who's going to have the rights to the first round of the expanded CFP in 2024 and 2025. So I would be shocked if, you know, we were sitting here in January without an indication of what the deal is going to look like. All right. Amanda Krisovich, thanks so much for joining us. We have our 2030 World Cup hosts, and there are a lot of them. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports writer Doug Greenberg. Welcome, Doug. Hey, Owen. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. Good to be here to talk about this. It's a fun one. Yeah, so let's take it from the top. Uh, who's hosting the 2030 World Cup? All right, so the 2030 World Cup is going to be hosted by Spain, Portugal, and Morocco. Cool. Three, three host countries. Um, nothing super unprecedented there besides the fact that it's going to be on two continents. That's the first time uh, a World Cup will ever be con- contested across multiple continents. That's pretty cool. But really, the area between Spain, Portugal, and Morocco is like the area of Texas. So it's not so bad in terms of travel. Um, Now, where this gets kind of interesting is the opening matches of the World Cup in 2030 are going to be played in Uruguay, Argentina, and Paraguay. And the reason they're doing this is because this is actually the 100th, it's not the 100th World Cup, it's the 100 year anniversary of the World Cup. It's the centenary. Um, And the first ever World Cup was contested in Uruguay. So the very first match of the 2030 World Cup is going to be at Montevideo's Estadio Centenario, which is obviously, that's a fun name as well for this whole situation. Uh, But that's actually where the very first World Cup final was held. So it's a fun little nod to history that they're doing here. Um, Obviously, it might create some logistical issues, but, uh, you know, it's an interesting idea for sure. Yeah, so I guess six teams are going to have a whole lot of travel, and the World Cup always involves travel. Hopefully, maybe those teams will be local, and then, but it's going to tra- create some travel weirdness one way or another. I assume they're going to space this out as best they can so that you know teams have time to get across the Atlantic, uh, but but that's not a short flight from South America to to Spain or Portugal or no, Morocco. It's- yeah, no, it's it's not a short flight at all. Uh, you got to go across a few time zones. Um, you know, I, it's it's one of those things in my mind where I'm like, I think this is actually a very cool idea. Um, and I think definitely having the first match in Uruguay, I think, is a really, really cool nod to history, um, you know, with Uruguay having been the first ever host. I'm not completely understanding why Argentina and Paraguay were thrown into the mix. Uh, Argentina, you can make the argument because they were in the first ever World Cup final against Uruguay. Uh, Paraguay, I'm not really getting it. Uh, they were in the first World Cup. They didn't get out of the not. They didn't get out of the group stage. 
Um, so, you know, I think if they had had just two teams playing an opening match in Montevideo, I think that would have been a very cool nod to history. Um, but yes, the logistics are going to create some very interesting competitive issues uh, for the six teams that are involved in that. And obviously, Uruguay, Argentina, and Paraguay are all going to be involved in that. Um, you know, usually the group stage matches are about a week apart uh, between the first couple or, you know, roughly five, six days, something like that. Is that enough time to get adjusted to that big of a travel gap? I guess we'll see. Um but, you know, and then there's also the question of the fact that there's now going to be six teams that are auto-bidded. Uh, you know, if we're talking about from a competitive standpoint, you know, six countries are now going to get auto-bids, um, especially for Paraguay, who's not by any means an auto-bid for the World Cup ever. Uh, like, they're not ever guaranteed to make, RV, obviously, Argentina, Portugal, Spain, you know, Morocco even um, are, are kind of staples. Uruguay is sort of a staple some years, not in other years, but, you know, definitely that's going to raise some eyebrows as well. Doug Greenberg, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, well, Owen, my pleasure as always. Up next, I spoke to NFL All-Pro and commentator Marcellus Wiley on the big narratives in today's NFL and college game and how things have changed since he was a player. Also on the work of his foundation, Project Transition. That conversation is coming up right after this. Very excited to be joined now by former NFL All-Pro, founder of Project Transition, and former ESPN, NFL Network, and Fox Sports commentator, Marcellus Wiley. Welcome, Marcellus. Oh, how's it going, Owen? Great. Great to have you. So uh, let's just start NFL. How are you enjoying the season so far? Uh, there have been better starts. Um, look, I always follow my heart first, and my heart is with the teams I used to play with and play for. So if you wrote me a check, I love you more. Uh, but Starts off with Buffalo, and after the first game, they've been crushing it since then, and obviously that huge win over Miami. I didn't even see that coming because I still had that bad taste from week one. Uh, but other than that, the Chargers a little up and down, um, not playing as well as I expected with the talent we have, but, you know, some injuries there. Mike Williams really hurts, but we still going to figure it out. We are too talented not to. Uh, Jacksonville, what? same kind of like the Chargers, like what's going on, Trevor Lawrence? And then you're like, all right, well, we got the victory, went across the seas and did that. And last but not least, Dallas Cowboys looking amazing. Uh, that Arizona game put it to the side. Uh, they really looking like a team that's going to contend for things. We'll see in San Francisco because that's going to be a tough one this weekend. Yeah, it's a tough matchup. Um, but you know, for that, that's not a bad four set of team set set of four teams to to be rooting for. So you, you did okay. And yeah, do a lot worse, man. Uh, look, they they got they had me in those days. We were doing much worse when I played for them. So it's like. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Jacksonville. I just have to bounce this one off of you. Um, uh, someone named Jay Kuda noticed this a little bit ago. The the Jaguars almost never play on primetime, like Monday Night Football, Sunday Night Football, but they do play a lot overseas. <laughs> so, you know, they're just playing back-to-back weeks in London. As someone who used to play for the team, any insight into why the NFL and the media networks treat the team that way? Yeah, man. Um, uh, it reminds me of when you were dating and, you know, when someone was busy and you're like, what do you mean busy? Like, you, you know, 
Everyone likes you. They're not busy. Everyone has 24 hours in their day. So they figure out and find time when they want to. And it's just like the NFL doesn't want to Jacksonville any shine. They're busy, like with other teams like Dallas. You know, every other day it seems like you're watching them on primetime. Um, but seriously, playing for the Jags before, um, Duval, Duval. I mean, that county's amazing. The energy's great down there. But it just feels like the forgotten city in the landscape in terms of the NFL and what they want to highlight. And I don't know why, because it's in the same state of Florida that Miami is there and Tampa, and they've all got their shine. And, you know, being in all those places, obviously Miami's a different city, but you don't understand why. Jacksonville's always been a good franchise. You know, they hit the ground running in the late 90s, and I just don't get it. Like, it's like, are they North Florida, South Georgia, and people just don't care? Not enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, and just, I mean, this is a very broad question, but I'm just curious, what do you, what do you see as the biggest difference in today's game versus when you were playing, which wasn't so long ago, but the NFL feels pretty different. Oh man. You know, we could take up the whole interview. Let's start here. Um, there are greater athletes on the field right now, just like what they can do in terms of the physics is just a whole different dimension than what we can do in general. Like there's obviously some guys from my era that would transcend this era and just be as fine. Javon Curse is still the freak in this era. But at the same time, um, there are more guys who are approaching or freakish like Javon Curse now. Like it's nothing to see a guy 280 run a 4'6", four, 4'5". Four, it's like back in my days, that was a rarity. So you're seeing more athleticism on the field. Um, you're seeing a protection of the game as a whole. Uh, just did a segment on my show, Never Shut Up, where we were talking about the concussion protocol. And it's just amazing that I played in the era there was no concussion protocol. Like, dude, if you could stand and see, you're playing. As <laughs> simple as that. Like, you got dinged or you got knocked out. There was no, like, I don't know if I could go back and forth. And there was no medical tent, et cetera. So they're protecting the players in an entirely different way. Um, outside of that, um, you're seeing the evolution of the game in terms of the dynamics and the philosophy. So even before my era, the running back, you know, student body right, student body left, you know, USC days, I formation, then single back, then nah, H back. Nah, let's put a receiver back there. Nah, let's put a quarterback back there. And now they're like, do we even need a running back? But obviously you do, but he's there to compliment. He's not the knockout punch anymore. It's that quarterback and receiver combination. So you're seeing guys switch positions. Uh, all these quarterbacks now are former tight end, could have been, uh, former wide receivers. You're seeing the tall, fast guy now throw the ball at the youth level, high school level. So when he hits the pros like they're doing now, you're seeing tremendous athletes at that position. So like I said, I got talk to you, talk you to death about this, but it's just fun to watch, man, because the game keeps going and it keeps growing. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about the running backs, you know, feeling underappreciated and just the changes in that position. We've talked about that a fair amount on the show. But yeah, part of it is that the quarterback is kind of the new running back. <laughs> it's like now it's like it feels like every every drive you get at least a couple plays where they, they drop back to pass and then they run 10 yards. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it should be that way. Look, the, the path of most resistance is running the ball. Um, one, there are seven to nine guys in the box. 
They weigh everywhere from, what, 240 pounds to 340. Uh, let's just say I'd rather go against that guy on the outside who's 180 pounds wet. And if I beat him, there's only another guy. He's only 200 pounds. And it's a touchdown. So, like, like it's, it's the path of least resistance throwing the football. Um, the average yard per catch versus average run is four or five yards versus 10, 11. Like, I'm a former running back, but I'm like, stop crying. Like, it's just the way it goes, and that's the way it should be. The path of least resistance to score those touchdowns. And the rules support it. I feel sorry for the running backs, but I also understand why they're getting phased out. Yeah, yeah, and no, I feel you there. Um, so in addition to being you know, all the things we mentioned, uh, you are the founder of Project Transition. So tell me about the work you're doing there. Yeah, uh, Project Transition is our foundation uh, where we help develop and discover the inner power of our youth of tomorrow and help them amplify it for the world to see. Um, our mission is just to make them greater than their greatest excuse. And we all have excuses. We all have reasons. We all have conditions. We all have things that are averse for us that we have to overcome. But what we are trying to do is make sure that the voice inside of them is louder than the voices outside. And this world will whisper to you. Sometimes it will yell at you that you are not good enough. Um, and that self-doubt can creep in, but we're there to give you the internal armor so that make sure that you're ready to take on this world. So I'm a, I'm a kid from a bad neighborhood. I'm from Compton. I'm from uh, South Central. And, you know, the world was trying to tell me who I was going to become. And thankfully, I never internalized that and I made sure that I made my dreams a reality. And I think that that's something that all the kids should know that they possess in power. And so no matter where you are and what you're going through, uh, you can escape that with your own ambition and you can escape that with your own attitude. So, you know, we got to make sure we encourage and support them through that process. And that's what we do through mentorship, resources and scholarship. We not only see the kids, but we check in. We have our biweekly check ins with the kids. So to make sure that we're constantly encouraging them when the world's trying to step on those seeds as they try to blossom. Yeah, absolutely. That's very cool. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, um, I feel like everyone could use something like that. But obviously, some people, you know, are dealt a harder hand than other people. Um, so yeah, just having that mentorship and someone who's who's giving you an alternate narrative, I think, you know, can just be tremendously impactful. Yeah, especially from the same experience. So I think my resume Look, I didn't pick where I was born. I didn't pick who my parents were. I didn't pick any of those things. But um, I was dealt that hand. And at the same time, I had a tremendous support system, uh, proper guidance. Uh, and I just was able to make my dreams real. Uh, but at the same time, there are other kids in there who they all possess that special uniqueness that they need to tap into and then make sure that they show that for the world. So uh, if I can do it, when I show up to the classroom, I kind of take all the excuses off the board. Oh, I'm broke. Oh, I'm from the hood. Oh, it's tough. And I'm like, and <laughs> I've heard it all. You're preaching to the choir. So let's go get it and take those excuses away. Yeah, very cool. Uh, before we let you go, um, so we were talking before we hit record. I asked you if you'd been keeping track of the whole Dion phenomenon. You said, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a breathing human being. So, so yeah, <laughs> it's kind of unavoidable. How long do you think this is going to be something where it's like this transcendent thing where you can't avoid it even if you want to? 
Um, I think as long as Dion is coaching, um, just think about who Dion Sanders is. Like he's transcendent in everything he does. Um, think about, I just remember his draft day and like, who is this guy? Like who was talking and professing all of these things and, and actually made them happen. Like the most beautiful thing about it was he went out there, he said it and he did it. I mean, I played against Dion and he's one of the few guys that when you're competing against him, you're still a fan of his and you're admiring his work while you're competing against him. I was like looking on the field like that's Deion Sanders. I was like, what? And I'm an active NFL player. So like that didn't go away. And now you look at him in this position and it's so great because this is like really bringing Dion together like Voltron because he was a tremendous player, but he's such a, a guy that can encourage and mentor and such a wise man and his words to talk to a group of others and to inspire them. That's the best part about Deion Sanders. It's like you get around him and your energy level rises. And I think that's why he's so transcending. Like those kids start to believe and then they also start to reimagine how great they can be. And that's just a difference. It's not a coach just giving you X's and O's. He's talking to the I's and U's on that team. He's talking to those individuals and hitting them in the heart. And so how long does it last? There's always a qualifier in this country of anything that's going to be a a, a phenomenon or something that's transcendent. It has to be successful. We don't give a damn. Like Tim Tebow was a phenomenon. Doug Flutie was a phenomenon. Johnny Manziel is a phenomenon. Dion's a phenomenon. Like it's all one common ingredient. They were winning. They were good. They were doing something because if not, if the results are subpar, then why are we interested? Like anybody could just wake up and do nothing. Anybody could wake up and lose a game. You got to wake up to work to get yourself in position to win. So Dion, as long as he's winning, and he doesn't have to win every game. He just has to be a winner because he's always going to have a winning message. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'll be fascinating to, to see that how that all plays out and you know, we're, we're in early stages in that story uh, Marcellus mm-hmm. Wiley thank you so much for joining us on the show uh, appreciate it Owen take care brother that's it for today subscribe on your favorite pro- podcast platform we're coming at you every single weekday with great interviews and content thanks so much for listening we will see you tomorrow <laughs>